Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Roland Betancourt about his new book, Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender, and Race in the Middle Ages, which was published by Princeton University Press in late 2020. Dr. Betancourt is Professor of Art History and Chancellor's Fellow at the University of California, Irvine. He is primarily a Byzantinist who works across the medieval Mediterranean world, and his work as of late has looked at the role of Byzantine art in modern and contemporary popular culture, as in his edited volume, Byzantium Modernism, the Byzantine as Method in Modernity from 2015. His first monograph, which I also highly recommend, uh, called Sight, Touch, and Imagination in Byzantium, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018, proposed a new understanding of theories of vision, and he has published numerous articles on a range of topics from a reconsideration of the tactility of sight in Byzantium to an exploration of the ethical practice of medieval art history. The book he wrote, which we'll be discussing today, is a fascinating study of the intersection of race, sexuality, and gender identity in the medieval world. It attempts to recover conversations in medieval thought and visual culture around a range of matters, from sexual and reproductive consent to bullying and sexual shaming. But then it also covers trans and non-binary gender identities and the depiction of racialized minorities. Dr. Bencourt explores these issues by using sources from late antiquity and early Christianity. And in so doing, he offers a fresh and at times shockingly modern history of gender, sexuality, and race. Byzantine intersectionality is at once thought-provoking, disturbing, at times infuriating, but then also groundbreaking. It is a book that I imagine will draw as much criticism as it will praise. For Dr. Bencourt does not hold back in this book, ladies and gentlemen. He explores issues of sexual consent in images of the Virgin Mary. He makes claims for transgenderism within medieval monastic life. And he argues there is evidence of same-sex desire in portrayals of the doubting Thomas, to name but a few episodes from the book. I am very excited to discuss this book with him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Roland Betancourt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's such it's been such a great process of writing this book that it's really wonderful to get to discuss it and, you know, share it with the world. 
Yeah, this is the good part, right? After all, after years of working on these things in in utter, well, I I would get, I imagine in your case, maybe maybe not utter uh, solitary state, but um, you know, but after laboring in the way that we do to to finally get to talk is is exciting, and I think this is going to be an especially fun one, as I tried to say in my intro for us to discuss. Um, so. I wonder if, as a sort of way of getting to the book, you might actually begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, where you were born, where did you graduate uh, from graduate school, uh, who were your mentors, how did you become interested in Byzantium? I mean, you could take this kind of in any direction you want, but I think listeners really enjoy hearing a little bit of your background before we dive into the book itself. Sure, I'd be happy to give a little bit of my backstory. Um, so I was raised in Miami, Florida, um, basically in the Everglades, as I like to say, um, in a place that my mom thought was the end of the world. And in many ways, it really was. It did feel that way, especially growing up there. Um, and I, my family is first-generation Americans. My, I am a first-generation American. Um, my Parents both came from Cuba um, about now 35, 40 years ago. And so I grew up in Miami in a very unique household and in a very, um, in some ways, not so unique to Miami, but very much grew up in a very unique space um, in confronting a lot of the issues that, of course, I address in the book. And after um, graduating from high school. I started off my career at the University of Miami and transferred from the University of Miami to the University of Pennsylvania. I very much knew from an early age that I wanted to be an art historian in many ways. Um, my mother is often blamed for this fact since she famously used to lecture me about famous works of art while I was still in like the baby seat in the back of the car. And oh so my, my, aunt, my aunt literally told her, she's like, why are you surprised he's an art historian? You sort of trained him to be this his whole life. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I took AP art history sophomore year of high school, and it was a really um, foundational um, experience. I think it's often hard to come to art history um, just for the sake that many students don't even know that it exists. And so having an AP class really sort of was horizon broadening. And I was very fortunate to take an AP art history class with someone who actually cared about art history and not just the AP exam, which meant that I had a very robust training in the history of art from a very early age. And I I really understood it. I was good at it. I comprehended it. I didn't have trouble memorizing things. You know, I didn't have to struggle with math that I wasn't terrible at, but also struggled with. Um, and so it was really sort of this thing that chose me. And I went into college knowing that I wanted to be an art historian from day one, just not really sure what period I wanted to work on. I really have always been someone who's more interested in the sort of historiographic conversations that the field has had, um, more so than being attracted to a particular moment or a particular work of art. And so when I got to UPenn, a lot of my time there was preparing for the fact that, of course, I needed to go to doctoral work afterwards. And it, a lot of my time there was just spent trying to figure out what niche of the history of art was I going to um, make a space for myself and sort of claim as home in some capacity. And as the years, the, basically the year went by since I was, I transferred, I began there as a junior, so I didn't have much time. 
I really began to gravitate to Byzantine art history, particularly because of the work of um, the person who would become my future graduate advisor, Robert Nelson. And I was very inspired by the way in which he understood Byzantium through the history of art and how his work repeatedly made contributions not only to Byzantine art history in a very narrow sense, but really to conversations happening in art history more broadly. And a lot of his articles, looking, for example, at the history of the slide projector and how we teach and understand the history of art, the history of how Byzantine art, for example, is showcased in our survey books, really were foundational um, texts for me as I found my way. And so I basically began applying to um, art history PhD programs in you know, oh, that must have been 2008, 2009, the worst time ever um, mm-hmm. to be a graduating undergrad. And I was very much set on becoming a Byzantinist at the beginning of my senior year, to which my um, advisor at the time, um, Bob Osterhout, looked at me and said, do you know any Greek? Do you have perfect German and French? Then what are you doing? What, are you, what exactly are you doing? And here I am just like, well, I have native fluency in English and Spanish, so that didn't count for much, but I very much charted my path and sort of never looked back in many ways. Um, I think I still sort of wake up with the weird feeling in my mouth of, I'm a Byzantinist? What is that? And I just slowly repeat that word to myself with all its oddities and um, strangeness to this weird, wonderful pocket of the Middle Ages that I felt, found myself falling into. Thank you so much oh, for for describing this to us. I don't mean to cut you off. I just a- almost wanted to, to interject with, with my enthusiasm simply for, I think there are more of us art historians who perhaps think really broadly or, or are interested in questions of, of historiography, which are always very broad and get kind of forced to be niche specialists, you know, in, in Byzantine, Byzantine studies or in Russian art in my case, or, or whatever the case may be. But that that never goes away. That that love of the the greater sort of timeline, and I I don't know. I find it very refreshing to hear you say that. So please go ahead. I didn't mean to. to no, cut not you at off. all. Thank you. Thank you for guiding this because you know it's interesting you say that because that's sort of you know I, I wasn't going to say much about grad school other than it happened um, because <laughs> of the fact that once I did get into grad school, you know I had. I had taken a lot of classes beyond what was required, especially transferring and so forth in undergrad, where I basically, I had basically two art history majors. And so I very much understood um, graduate school as the moment of focus. And so I definitely, grad school was very much the this effort in focusing and taking as many classes as I could within Byzantium proper um, to sort of rein in my broader um, historiographic interest, while of course doing a lot of reading. And I think that is one of the wonderful things about a discipline that is a s- small, relatively speaking, as art history, that you really are able to um, have a very intimate connection with your colleagues through the methods that we share. We're very much oriented around our methodologies um, as we approach a very um, disparate and diverse group of sources and texts and situations and periods that all require their own sensibilities. 
Absolutely. So true. Well, maybe it's a sort of logical direction to go, uh, you know, since you're, you had some brevity with how you describe graduate school, though I understand saying, you know, it happened. And I hear you too, if we have any graduate students listening, I, I do hope this is, boy, can you imagine if there was podcasts like this back when we were in graduate school, I would have just eaten them up. I mean, every everything that, that Tim Clark ever did or Tim Berenger, you know, at Yale, I, I would have absolutely listened to interviews like this. But graduate students, did you hear Roland say, you know, that that he didn't have the languages? And I, I was very much the same way. I remember sitting down just after having graduated as an undergrad and being asked, okay, so how good is your German? How good is your Italian? And and thinking, oh my God, I don't I don't speak those at all. Like I have Russian and I have English and that's it. So um, that was refreshing to Roland, I think. So following, you know, off of this, I, I want to ask very broadly, similarly, how did you come to write this book, Byzantine Intersectionality? You know, you've described sort of how you ended up locking into Byzantium. Um, um, and maybe, you know, we should point out too, or I should point out that you have been uber productive for, for just having graduated. You got your PhD in 2014, if I'm correct. And, you know, this is your third book, one, a co-edited volume, but, you know, this is an incredible speed at which to produce. So might you tell us the story of how this came about and, and maybe also, you know, speak to this, this productivity you have, which is really remarkable. Yeah, this book um, came out of a series of ongoing research. Um, my dissertation, which I did at Yale, on working with Robert Nelson, um, and finished in 2014, um, really was a sort of multi-pronged project. Um, I always say that it was inspired by a BuzzFeed article on Beyonce's song, Grown Woman, that said, oh no gosh. matter how many tabs you open up this song in, it will still sound the same. And I really wondered if I could write a dissertation that all chapters could be read at once. And so I had these um, chapters divided by sections that the idea was that you could read these three narratives that sort of interlaced with one another. Um, one of those narratives became my first book, um, Sight, Touch, and Imagination in Byzantium, in a, in a very broadly developed and expanded range. Um, the middle chapter is my next book that's coming out in March 2021 um, on the recitation of the Gospels. Um, so it's very much looking at the Gospels in Byzantium from text, um, marginal illumination, all the way through recitation practices and the resonances of sound in architectural spaces. And the final part of that dissertation is a project on time and temporality in Byzantium. And so I will say that I had a lot of energy coming out of the PhD program. And I think I, in many ways, the pressure of, of the realities of being, you know, an assistant professor um, in our period is th they're very big pressures that really encourage you um, to learn how to be productive. They encourage you to think about um, what your work um, its impact is on the field, but also what its impact is on the world, um, in your communities, and so forth. And so very much so, my productivity has really come from uh, a desire to really just, you know, get out there into the world to really be able to contribute in some meaningful way, both to the history of art, but also um, to the various communities I'm a part of and to the realities um, that afflict us today. 
And so this project, more specifically, really emerged from my time at the Institute for Advanced Study. I had a fellowship year there, I guess my third year at UC Irvine, um, where which I began my job there the year I graduated from high school, from, oh gosh, high school, um, <laughs> from my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. And I jumped into that postdoc um, or fellowship year very much wanting to finish up this book on time and temporality while also wrapping up my first book. And that really changed over the course of that year. I really early on decided, you know, there's a lot of freedom here to do whatever you want. Um, That's something that's very crucial at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. There's the sense of you're here, you know, take your time, work on something that excites you. And I really took that to heart. And so you know, by November of that fellowship year, I was presenting my first chapter of that book. And it was on election day in 2016 that I presented to the medieval seminar at Princeton, um, the chapter on sexual consent, um, very different world that this book was written for. And so the book really came out of this feeling that as I was doing all that other research that was very broad and spanning a lot of different areas in Byzantine studies and art history, Um, these were sort of the stories that were caught quite literally in the margins of my thought. And so if you look at some of the examples that I talk about in passing in issues of perception, cognition, um, in my first book, you can see the ways in which they sort of bloom and blossom out into these tendrils of narratives in this book. It very much is a book that comes out as a sort of byproduct of being a Byzantinist and all these stories that you know, I, I just sat there being like, do we not notice what's going on here? Do we, are we not seeing this? And so this book was really about giving life to that and then producing, you know, going into other areas and learning more about my field to see where else there might be glimmers of these narratives and stories. Well, you have absolutely done that work. If, I mean, if that's what you set out to do, I think searching or, or burrowing into those, the glimmers that you saw just under the surface is is very much the way that this book reads. So maybe we can kind of take it chapter by chapter, obviously meandering and, and going wherever we want. This is this is our show. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's interesting to hear you say that the, the first uh, iteration that you presented of the work, it, it ended up being the first chapter. I mean, am I right in hearing that this chapter, which is called in the book, The Virgin's Consent, is what you presented, as you said, on election day in 2016? Is that right? That is correct. Um, this book was quite unique in that um, there the o- only one chapter was cut, which was a chapter on um, disability. And just for the sake of coherence and the suggestions of my peer reviewers, it was cut out and it'll have, a, it'll have another life in a different publication. Um, but it was really a book that, you know, I sort of, it came fully formed out of my head, what I, the, the chapters that I wanted to write. Um, and I sort of set forth to execute those chapters. And so the, the, there's definitely a narrative arc that is very much preserved. I think in academic books, we work so hard slaving over edits and revisions, and there's never a sort of, you know, there's never a darling that you're going to protect in your writing. And so you are really slashing, reorienting the book constantly, um, very much so in my first book. And so this book was very much about preserving that initial spark, which I think is very important because at the end of the day, that sort of train of thought um, 
sketch that we always do of our books has such a has such a narrative power to how we're thinking and what's at the core of our thought process that I really um, it was very effortless in this case to preserve that because every chapter is sort of its own case study narrative minuscule history but um, it is it was also important to respect this book as it um, sort of came to me for lack of a better term far more complex than that but yeah that's that's remarkable this you know I always I love asking when I have people on the line like this what order you wrote the chapters in because any anyone who's written a book will know that it it isn't always the clean you know oh I I wrote chapter one and then I wrote chapter two and you know it's it's very in my case at least and with most people I interview it's much more like oh well chapter three was first and then I wrote one and then I did four you know it's sort of all over the place and and as you said you end up cutting and editing and and you know making adjustments based on peer review. Are you telling me that you wrote this like chapter one was the first thing you wrote, two and then three, like in that order? Yeah, I. Whenever grad <gasps> students ask me about this book, I say you should not try to emulate any aspect of the writing of this book because that's wild. Yeah. Oh uh, my gosh! Wow. Okay, <laughs> I, you're just the first person I have ever talked to. But I mean, it sounds like you had a, a reason to do it, which was to protect, as you said, the sort of intensity of of the original idea and its unfolding in your mind as the scholar who is wrangling this material. Yeah, I'm also someone who, in the in terms of practice of writing, I always begin with a table of contents. I always have, mm. I always try to begin there in sort of sketching out what is um, possible. And even if you're, even if you're beginning on a project that you have, you know, you have to do the research, this is very different because this project emerged already sort of the, the bulk of the research was already there. So I knew the lay of the land in a different way than if I were starting, you know, a project from scratch. But I mm-hmm. still think there's something very powerful about presenting an outline. Um, to yourself, a, a chapter outline that will be completely wrecked over the years, mm. but that sort of captures a little bit of what you think some of the clusters um, of importance, the sort of orienting points might be. So I will say that in many ways, it also comes out of that. I One of the times, one of the things that I often tell grad students who are struggling with, you know, what's going to be my dissertation, um, especially students who have very strong and um, disparate interests and have written a lot of papers all over the place, I always recommend tell yourself that you have to make your dissertation from every seminar paper that you have to write, that you have already written. What would that dissertation look like if you had to make those all work together? And I feel like that's a very, that can be a very helpful process of understanding what are my core interests? What is the line um, of work that really goes throughout all these various papers and um, investigations that I've undertaken. And I think, you know, often on the when you're on the job market, um, you might get mm-hmm. asked precisely that type of question in a different way, which is, you know, what what orients you as a scholar? What is your sort of like, what is the deeper scholarly path or investigation you've been undertaking? So for me, I think that's a very important um, process of discovering yourself and discovering what it is that matters to you as a scholar. Mm-hmm. Wow. that's. It. I'm going to have to think about that more in terms of that advice that you give and, and what I would say if I was a student of yours, or even now, you know, as, as you're saying, when when you're conceptualizing yourself for tenure or for job market stuff, you, you we kind of have to ask ourselves that constantly. 
Um, I have on my you know notes that I'm looking at here as we as we plow through the book, sort of what I perceive to be the big claim that you make in each of these chapters, and maybe that's most often for me as I was reading it because I, I've expressed that that there were moments of sort of shock and awe as I I wrote as I read this book, and I want to get into that. I feel like I'm I'm leading listeners like what is so shocking about this book? Are they are they ever going to talk about it? Yes are. So, you know, I, we can proceed however you want. Um, I'm happy to say what I think the big claim is, and then maybe you can say, oh, no, I, you know, that isn't the center of it. And you're missing, you know, you're missing the forest for the trees, or we can proceed as we usually do on the podcast. And, and you just tell us what, what each chapter is about, starting with this chapter on, that you've called the virgin's consent. What sounds like more fun? Um, I am happy to do a little bit of both. So maybe we can talk more about them. So if you want to lead us a little bit through the chapters, I'm as long as it doesn't stray too much from, I guess, um, a blurb introduction, I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, sure. So my perception or the the like, whoa, aha, you know, get the highlighter out moment um, from chapter one for me was that you essentially claim that Annunciation iconography, i.e. the moment in which the Virgin Mary is visited uh, by the angel Gabriel and, and told, or it's announced to her, though I'm being very careful how I say this because of your discussion of it in the book, that she is going to be the, the mother of, of the Christ, um, that you compare that iconography essentially to iconography that surrounds rape, um, specifically the Susanna and the elders, and you have a few other examples. This was the whoa moment for me, and I imagined what it would be like to teach that, and uh, maybe you can unpack this further, but am I right that that is the sort of big claim at the center of this first chapter? Well, I would say that it's not all about the iconography. What the the real story in that chapter is that in conceptions of the Annunciation, we see a very significant shift after the period of iconoclasm. Um, roughly from the ninth century onward, we see a heightened fascination, concern, almost a mounting paranoia about the Virgin's consent to become the mother of God in narratives of the Annunciation. And for me, the, the art historical side of this is that it definitely oriented me to a realization of the ways in which the Virgin is depicted precisely in icons of the Annunciation. I think when we think of icons in many ways, especially from a more popular standpoint, and here I can even use the word icon very broadly, we think very mm -hmm. much like, it's almost like we have a sort of emoji treatment of, of icons where it's like <laughs> enunciation, that's it. That's sort of what it's communicating. And sometimes we don't really spend the time to think about, of course, as art historians, it was our goal, but to think about the the details and the nuances that happen beyond this is the Annunciation, and in particular asking ourselves, what is the Annunciation? Because a lot of these stories that are so critical in the history of Christianity, what we really have in the biblical text, not only not to even address the fact that the Bible is, um, for much of the Middle Ages, a very fluid text in and of itself, um, mm -hmm. What we have is really a fragment that oftentimes a lot of the key details 
um, that we expect to be in these stories, like Thomas actually touching Christ, um, the narrative of how the Virgin, you know, agrees to this moment, a lot of those details are not actually explained in those narratives. So medieval, early Christian writers, medieval writers spent a lot of time grappling with what is not there. And that's one of the critical things that is very important to keep in mind about when we think about the history of Christianity. It's not a history um, of this is what the Bible says and therefore that's what it is. It's a history of um, very critical thinking of these are things that don't make sense. These are details that are missing. How do we make this make sense? How do we understand a fluid narrative from this text and the theology that is written alongside it? And so that is something that you very much see in the narratives around the Annunciation. Before iconoclasm, you have this sort of iffy timeline. At some point, yes, Mary consents. Um, at some point, yes, she becomes impregnated. Um, and sort of the timing of this really varies, particularly in, in homilies as to whether this process happens. And even the big question of how does this process happen? So metaphors that she conceived um, through the ear, that is, she was penetrated, but also not penetrated, which hearing is such a perfect model um, Mm -hmm. for. Um, These create sort of things that make Byzantine writers in later centuries very uncomfortable because it places the power of the conception on the speech act of Gabriel. Um, And so therefore it emphasizes the power to conceive on Gabriel and not on Mary. After iconoclasm, this radically changes for many reasons that I go into in the chapter, but it it changes to a direction where there is a very concise um, understanding that Mary had to consent to the Annunciation. And the reasons why, or rather consent to um, becoming the mother of God, the which I will just say as a side note, also should urge us to also rethink the word annunciation, which of course suggests um, that it's just merely an announcement. The reality Mm -hmm. that Byzantine writers don't um, focus in on, even if of course it is called um, the sort of bringing of good tide, is really on the complexity of that scene. That Mary is hesitant that there's this young, attractive man in her bedroom, and he is telling her, that she is going to conceive without a man and Mary being the very righteous, pure maiden that she is and a very smart one at that says, no, how is this possible? And basically goes into a process of cross-examining the angel to work Mm -hmm. out the details and to really understand um, the realities. And so with that understanding, we can turn back to images of the Annunciation and see that, you know, the weird face of Mary in some of these images. Um, I always think of Simone Martini's Annunciation, where you have this recoiling virgin who looks sort of in disgust at the angel and mm-hmm. looks away. Something that undergrads will almost in a very readily, readily like point out what what's going on here. This is so weird. Yeah. Um, but that we get accustomed to in many ways as medievalists, as early modernists. Um, For me, it was taking those types of details more seriously in the history of art and understanding how these postures of twisting and turning away, these acts of recoiling, actually speak so well to the types of narratives that these homilies show us. That precisely the Virgin is not going to consent 
to the angel's tiding at first glance or at first hearing, that she is going to debate it in her mind, that she is going to make sure that she is not being led astray, that this is not just some suitor, as the angel is often described in these texts. And so you see this emphasis that becomes not just a sort of, um, you know, a sort of fan fiction um, explanation of the scene, but it becomes a very crucial theological point about the role of Mary um, and her relationship to the Annunciation um, and the scene, the importance of this moment. And so this, for me, is really what these narratives allow us to see. It's to look at images of the Incarnation, um, of the Annunciation, and understand that there are tensions inherent in these images that speak precisely to the hesitation that Mary expresses and the way in which she approaches that decision. Mm -hmm. And as you say, the way that that so fundamentally separates her from Eve, from, you know, this, this earlier figure who, who doesn't, you know, sort of hesitate or ponder or think over what's happening before she uh, eats the apple and, and partakes from the tree of knowledge. And, you know, you go into all of the kind of theological implications of this in, in these homilies and things that you're describing being written. Um, I think that that was really a nice sort of summation of this first chapter, can I uh, ask you to do this the same um, for chapter two, which is entitled "Slut Shaming an Empress," um, and sort of take us through, you know, what are the the main points? What's the driving force? And then I'll tell you, you know, what what I sort of think the big claims are for, especially, you know, within history and and art history, perhaps. Of course. Um, so this chapter turns to a very difficult text in Byzantine history known as the Secret History. It is a text written by Procopius of Caesarea, who all good Byzantinists know um, from his other texts, The Buildings and the Wars, um, which are two compendia, not compendia, but rather um, comprehensive histories of the rule of Justinian that basically showcase um, all the wonderful things that the imperial family has done mainly restoring monasteries um, and church buildings and doing all those wonderful things that a good imperial family should do. <laughs> Sorry, sneeze. That's um, all right. <laughs> and in this text, you in, in the buildings, for example, you have um, descriptions of the building of Hagia Sophia, all the architectural challenges that were faced, and so forth. But then Procopius writes another text, um, a text that was probably written for a very small audience. He begins it with a preface that sounds a lot like a sort of conspiracy theory or a tell-all memoir, which is, I was there, I saw all the things that were happening in the empire, and now I couldn't tell you these things before because they would have killed me, but now that I have um, enough people enough people are dead now, I can actually tell you what actually happened during the rule mm, of Justinian juice. Theodora. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's like, I was there, I was in the room where it happened, and now I'm going to say everything. Mm -hmm. And I always like to say that this text is somewhere between a QAnon conspiracy theory and one of these like John Bolton or Bob Woodward rage type <laughs> memoirs. It's, it really is okay, one of these that interesting... Helps. It's one of these interesting texts where 
a lot of the biggest struggle with this text that um, Byzantine historians and specialists in Byzantine literature have is how much do we trust of it? It has a lot of interesting details that are corroborated by um, things that we know from other historical chronicles that, in fact, Procopius leaves out of his more positive histories of the empire. It shares, you know, a, a plethora of fascinating and scandalous details about the emperor, which, of course, range from, you know, him selectively accusing, um, essentially retroactively, men um, known to practice in homosexual acts of some sort and prosecuting them because they were basically speaking against the emperor. And then you have these moments where it says that Justinian was truly a devil and those who were in the palace late at night with, with him would see him get out from his throne, his head would disappear, and he would pace the halls headless. So, you know, Oof. it is this sort of fascinating tension as to what really does this text offer us as historians. Enter the narrative of Theodora. Mm-hmm. If you've ever heard something about Theodora um, that is not just the mosaics at Ravenna, um, you've probably heard details of Theodora's life that are actually recounted in the secret history, um, which is essentially that she was some sort of circus performer, the details of which are scandalous and salacious in every in every um, amount of nuance, detail, and specificity that really are trying to really shame her um, for her sexual deeds. And one of the key points that comes up here um, is the fact that she also used um, a lot of abortive and contraceptive practices in order to ensure that she never conceived, particularly in her life as a sort of circus performer, sex worker, the language is really ambiguous and all-encompassing in how she is described. But very interestingly as well, these types of claims against Theodora are also more, in a less um, scandalous and sensational way, are deployed as well in the text against a lot of the women of the imperial circles of Constantinople at the time. And so you have a text that, even if it creates these hyperbolic literary figures, is also deploying these misogynistic stereotypes um, of the period against women. And so in many ways, for me, the goal of this chapter was to recuperate Theodora in a way that tried to liberate her a little bit from the shame. One of the biggest um, attacks that Procopius has on her is that she did all these sexual things shamelessly. It's not the fact so much that morally she was just violating nature with her sexual acts. It was really that she was shameless in her behavior. And for me, that was a very powerful thing. And that's why I use the modern term of slut shaming to really understand the processes that happen in the text to understand how this figure is dealt with. A lot of the time in the text, I also really focus on these attacks on abortion to understand really what did abortion look like? in mm-hmm. the Byzantine Empire, particularly what did abortion and contraceptives look like in the period of Theodora, which we have a fascinating gynecological treatise that comes at the end of sort of this compendium of medical books that really goes into all the host of practices passed down from antiquity that um, Byzantine women had at their disposal um, to undertake abortive abortions and also um, use contraceptives. 
<sighs> Apologies. That's all right. Bless you again. Well, I'll take the opportunity to to jump in and and say that I thought that the the part of this chapter that deals, you know, with uh, abortion and issues that surround it in this period was was fascinating, groundbreaking. Um, at one point, you discussed the fact that some Byzantine authors actually put the blame on men who copulated with women and then had abortions, saying, you know, that you you essentially made them murderesses. Um, and I just, this, you know, is such a, a, a new or fresh perspective, very modern, I think, maybe even more cutting edge than we are in some ways and, and in some liberal circles, you know, to put the blame on men um, really reorients our sense of their understanding of that. Um, of course, you know, I, I have these concerns as, as a historian and, and we're both art historians, so I know you know the place that I'm coming from, but this, you could say, uh, occasionally, you know, regardless of whether Procopius's portrayal of Theodora is accurate, or you know, these these various allusions to uh, essentially, I'm not I'm not going to try to prove or disprove whether these things about her are true, uh, but but I'm going to take it as a sign that figures like her did exist in sixth century Constantinople, and you know, I sort of immediately cringed and thought, regardless, what no is the, I mean, is this what we should be saying as historical? And so maybe I'll, I'll put it to you to, to further sort of substantiate or, you know, the, the reasons why you didn't feel a need to, to dig into Procopius's claims one way or another. Sure. Yeah. The one of the, the challenges, of course, is that we struggle here in answering this question is really, well, what is our function as historians? Mm-hmm. And in many ways, um, a lot of the answers for these questions that we have as to like the veracity of Procopius's account in the secret history, the truth of the matter is that is that we cannot answer those questions definitively. We can, of course, find more texts that might corroborate some of these stories. We might find texts that might dispel them. Um, mm-hmm. But you also have to acknowledge the amount of privilege that Theodora had as an imperial woman, as the empress. And so in many ways, any attack that we have against Procopius's text, we could also have against any other text that might either bring up these issues or downplay them. And for me, the, the real thing, the real important aspect of being a historian is that we have to understand what our sources say, and we have to understand what is um, the official narrative in a moment of time you know, by the church, by the imperial powers. But we also, our real goal is, and what distinguishes us from amateur historians, let's say, is being able to look at those details and think critically about what does the host of evidence say to us, communicate to us? How do we responsibly interpret that in a way that gives us a better understanding of the realities of a period? Which is Mm -hmm. to say, you can't just understand what the text says and take it at face value but rather you have to look to see what are the various um, imprints that some of these lives would have had. Mm-hmm. And so by turning, of course, to a medical text that is commissioned by clearly an elite um, patron in Constantinople and uniquely has this one text um, on gynecology, you have to begin to understand that someone thought it was very important to commission this text um, on gynecology that is 
unapologetic. There is no, there is no sort of um, sort of Christian apology as we might expect of abortions are horrible and a crime against God and therefore all this. That language is not in this text. It is very matter of fact. It is if a mother is dying in childbirth, here is how you perform a surgical operation to remove the fetus limb by limb, what we would call late-term abortion. Um, Use this recipe as a contraceptive, and after this, you will surely not conceive. And these recipes have actually been passed down from ancient texts, but they have alterations, which suggest to us that they have been refined over the years. And the author even has added notes of their infallibility. This is a type of evidence that we find across medical texts that come not only from the 6th century, but centuries afterwards. And so as a historian, we really, I really have the, the pressure to look at these texts and understand them for what they are offering us, demonstrating that there is an unbroken chain of medical knowledge being passed on that is really manifesting itself. And what really for me is the cincher in all this is to find a description of one of these late-term abortions in a saint's life where they say that a doctor was called because the mother was dying and the doctor was about to operate, but then of course the saint performed a miracle and um, was able to spare the doctor from having to undertake the operation mm-hmm. and it saves the life of the mother and the infant. And that is fascinating because to find in a text that is not written by a doctor, a text that is um, written by this author of the saint's life, a description of removing the fetus limb by limb tells you that there is a understanding of medical knowledge here that permeates deeper and speaks to a certain understanding casually of what this operation is. There's no sensationalism about this strange operation that was performed. It was matter of fact that this is what the doctor would undertake. And so understanding these um, constellations of data points together, you begin to understand more of the reality. And so for me as a historian, and particularly an art historian, I think it's very important to bring out all those narratives, all those um complexities that are unspoken and precisely invisible in our works of art to bear on what we're seeing in the visual culture. And so this is really where this chapter emerges from, is really a sort of process in thinking critically about the disparities of sources and what those interstitial spaces reveal about life in a certain period. Mm -hmm. I hear you. I really do. And maybe I should point out to listeners that I think one of the amazing things about this chapter is the way that you're able to use Theodora and this, you know, perhaps true, perhaps not true, exaggerated regardless text, Secret History by Procopius, as a means of exploring all of the, the abortion material that you were just describing and and sort of the medical understandings that surround it. I mean, the way you make that slide between one and the other is is really a thing of, you know, writerly excellence. I guess I just am, am kind of endlessly concerned with the articulation of, of the image of Theodora that that of course Procopius puts forward and that and that you as you said, are not able to, will never be able to, to fully push against or deny because we just, we just don't know. Um, but towards the end of the chapter, you mentioned this idea that of what, what is necessary is the articulation of an image of 
a sexually active, promiscuous, abortion-having, orgy-partaking, oral sex-enjoying, sodomitical Theodora, who nevertheless persisted. And I think you have a lot of these great moments where you know there, there are double meanings to, to the, the way that you're describing this. So who Theodora, who persisted, nevertheless persisted, and thrived in the Constantinople social sphere, which included many other figures just like her. And, you know, I, I, it's like there's so much of this that I accept and I imagine a lot of readers will be so enthused to hear just a scholar taking on this material and drawing out of it what you are. Um, but my concern is that it reduces her, you know, down to just the, the narrative surrounding the sex that she had and all of her other achievements and, you know, pulling herself up by the bootstraps in the way that, that we definitely know that she did. You know, all of that is glossed and Procopius's claims sexually shaming her, as you say, are just, are given so much power. It's such a tricky situation. It is indeed. And that's one of the challenges also of dealing with marginalized figures in history is that a lot of the figures that we um, try to understand in the past might exist only through invective, through Mm -hmm. attacks on their personhood. And so being able to recuperate these lies without erasing the pain is something that's very important as a historical task, um, which I think is one of the key things that we have to grapple with in how we both point to the evidence. You know, these these figures are not new, their lives are not inventions, but they are also preserved only through the brutality that they faced. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this is a, a nice segue to, I think, further similar problems, but also um, revelations that, that come about in chapter three, which is entitled Transgender Lives and centers on the, the lives of monks and eunuchs and, you know, attempts to understand, as you say, the ways that the very institution of monasticism is, in your opinion, a fundamentally queer practice. So maybe you can take us through, you know, what you mean by that and, and similarly kind of, you know, how you're using queer in the book, I think, is, is really vital. And um, this, this is a chapter that, that is packed with the similar kind of problematic dynamics that you were describing in the Theodora chapter, but it moves in a different direction. Yes. Um, so this chapter really deals with a very fascinating number of saints' lives, of figures who were assigned female at birth, but for many reasons um, chose to live out their lives as male monastics, often being understood in their communities as eunuchs, reasoning away the fact in particular that um, they did not have beards. Um, and what really attracted me to these stories was the way, of course, in which these figures so powerfully and poignantly oftentimes beg their brothers to please do not like prepare the body after um, their death so that you know they are not shamed, so that their gender identity is not betrayed at the moment of death. In all Byzantine depictions of these figures, you have them shown at the moment of their death as women, even though in the narratives themselves, these figures very clearly um, claim their masculine identity, and they are very much attempting to 
avoid the processes that today we might refer to as dead naming or misgendering. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was one of the most pressing um, aspects, combined with the fact that in many of these stories, authors very critically and interestingly deploy a series of languages that are used in medical books to essentially describe um, differences between sexes, but also to articulate the ways in which some figures might not adhere to either their gender identity or to their sex that has been assigned at birth. And so you have a series of fascinating details from the fact that these figures ceased menstruating because of the deprivation of their monastic practices um, to these more complex understandings about the ways in which skin darkened through these practices. Um, And darkening of skin is oftentimes associated with men. So you Mm -hmm. have, even in some of these medical books that I've been describing before, these descriptions of so-called manly women um, who very rarely menstruate and who also have coarser, darker skin. And so you have here this very interesting um, depiction of these transmasculine figures that are also intersected with these series of um, their identities as these transmasculine figures are basically edified through a lot of the language and stereotypes that existed in medical texts about gender. And so for me, that really opened up a world of understanding a very Byzantine, uniquely Byzantine understanding um, to these aspects of gender identity in the past. And what is fascinating is that through these figures, through these trans monks, what you really begin to see is this fascinating space where writers are able to explore some of the discomforts that happen in monastic spaces. And I discuss this more in chapter four, but because these figures are both simultaneously deployed as men, rightfully so, but also sometimes misgendered as just being women by their authors, they allow um, many spaces where authors can unashamedly speak about these figures attracting the lust and desire of other monks to the point that they need to be isolated in the monastery so that the monks are and sort of trying to sneak into their cells. And these dynamics are really fascinating because at the same time, one of the key accusations that we find across these narratives is that women accuse these monks of sleeping with them in some capacity, or they try to sleep with them, as -hmm. in the story of one monk um, where this woman named Melania tries to sleep um, with um, the young, attractive monk. And so you have these very fascinating moments where the complexities of sexual desire as it intersects with gender identity um, really reveal the tensions that existed in monastic spaces as well. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about the way that you're describing this and and the word that you keep using in terms of these narratives and you know, I found myself wondering, even as I was reading it, and there are moments where you address this, you know, how how much should we 
think of these as, again, from a historical standpoint, as people who actually existed. You discuss, you know, the the, the narratives concerning trans monks, whether they're real or imaginary. You know, they provide models for understanding what a transgender identity might have looked like in this period. Um, but, you know, are these mostly just stories? And, you know, that's such a, again, a problematic question, I know, but you know, how how should we take them as historians, knowing that there's a certain amount of, you know, titillation in these stories and, you know, oh, it's, you know, like, you know, there's a um, an interest in sort of homoerotic dynamics between women and in the story of Melania that you were just describing, you know, it's, it's just, there's so much much in this book that that is challenging for the reader and I think really, you know, demands that we reconceptualize our expectations of this period, which I know is one of the goals you set out to, to do. Yeah, so this is an interesting and very wide question because of the mm-hmm. fact that if you're going to read these stories as stories, then you also need to read them, you know, as good stories. These stories are not presenting, it's not a moment of a Theodora where there's sort of this desire to shame her, but also potentially be um, stirred up by the potential narratives that are being communicated, especially thinking mm-hmm. of this imagined um, cis male heterosexual um, reader. But with these stories, you don't have that language. It's never about sensationalism it is about look at these very pure godly people who chose throughout adversity to approach god in this process and it is um it is these figures who are trans that approach god through their gender and that is very powerful these are stories that are set forth for emulation like any saint's lives you are hearing the lives of these saints to emulate their goodness to emulate what they represent and there's a lot of diversity in how these stories that are sort of clumped together actually deal with gender identity there's um, a lot of interesting um, complexity there and so for me that's very important to keep in mind that these stories have a very different tenor than something that might be more scandalous or sensational they really lack those aspects in many ways. And one thing that I will also point out, which to broaden this a little bit, especially for those who are not as aware of like the broader space of medieval studies, is that mm-hmm. these stories have a very popular afterlife in um, the medieval West. And they attract a lot of attention, a lot fuller um, illustration, il- illustrative programs and manuscripts. And in many ways, these stories have attracted a lot of recent attention in the past five to 10 years of scholars who have really been looking at them to understand what this shows about um, these various trans figures. And so there's a lot of wonderful work being done right now by a series of scholars who are looking precisely um, through the lens of trans studies at these stories, but they're looking at them through their Western medieval afterlives. And I think that's one of the very important divides that's happened here is that while Byzantine studies for a long time has relegated these as, you know, transvestite saints, um, women in disguise, all these sort of pejorative terms, um, what you actually have in the Western medieval world, particularly within literary studies, is this thriving and complex space of trans studies looking at these lives, which is always a very interesting place to mediate because looking at them with a distinctly Byzantine sensibility, they tell a very 
uniquely Byzantine story that really sort of manifests itself later in the West in ways that are both radically different, but also bear a very clear imprint of this diverse, gender diverse empire that really had very complex approaches to gender, particularly because of figures like eunuchs and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking at the time. I'm like uh, just so enjoying our conversation and have so many questions that are coming up for me and and things I want to, you know, sort of further ask you to keep talking about or explain more. Alas, we still have two chapters of the book that that we could or should talk about. I mean, this is always pretty loose form in terms of of how we handle this. Maybe I'll just point out to listeners that um, briefly that the last two chapters are sort of continuing much of what we've been discussing. Chapter four is called Queer Sensations and talks very, very much specifically about the um, uh, Doubting Thomas episode from from the New Testament, and and you do a treatment similarly where you you know discuss the the texts and the homilies and the the explications that surround this, but then also you really dig in and get back to the images as you did in in chapter one, and chapter five called the Ethiopian Eunuch is about exploring how race manifested itself in the Byzantine sphere, and also deals you know really heavily with with texts and then with a, a wide range. The most images in the book are are in chapter five, it's really exciting to, um, to hear, you know, you return to that art historical mode properly, I think the most in the, the last chapter of the book as a kind of grand finale. Um, we're running out of time, but I, I want to ask you about one more thing. And I think it's something, um, I don't know that you'll be asked about it. So maybe it's why I'm, I'm asking about it in this format, sort of one art historian to another. And it has to do with our lives, you know, as writers and, and with language and tone and, and how we, how we develop the arguments that we do and, and build the interpretations that we put forward. Um, and, you know, there is this kind of really, fascinating, very righteous, very activist ethos that runs through this book. It, it pops up and, and the voice with which you speak in, in this kind of, you know, there's an ethical dimension to this. There's an urgency that, that, that is really quite interesting. Um, at the very end of the book, in the, in the book's uh, conclusion or epilogue, you state that future scholarship must acknowledge that marginalization, oppression, and intersectionality are not modern constructs. They are methodologies. To say that articulating and calling out these forces is anachronistic or contrary to the historian's project is to be complicit with oppression. And that's an end quote. Um, you know, this is, I think, as strong as a voice as it can get. And I wonder if you might just say something about the strength of your voice and this desire for there to be a kind of activist ethos and, and a call to action for, you know, what you described before as sort of your tribe. But can you say just a little bit about that here at the end? Yes, of course. I mean, I think this is one of the most important aspects of the book. Um, for me, you know, there's always the question of how are you going to convince those who need the most convincing or the distance of like, how do you convince those who don't want to be convinced? And my response to that is often, you know, you, that can often be a very futile attempt. And I think this comes a lot from someone who very much was trained, especially as a queer Latinx person to really play into respectability politics, um, to always think of yourself like, 
I'll write that book once I have tenure. This sort of like delay of a sort of um, tr- um, sincerity or activism or whatever we might want to call it. Um, and this book really comes out of this feeling of like this far and no further. Like I will not continue to be complicit. I will not continue to downplay um, my voice out of fear of rejection. And for me, that was much more powerful to reach out and be as unapologetic as possible in order to precisely encourage a new generation. I keep saying that this is a book that I want to be obsolete in 10 years because there's been so much work done that furthers the complexity of its narratives, not ignores it or just tosses it aside, but that really goes beyond the very short narratives that each one of these topics receives in this book. And so for me, the most important aspect here is to create a space for these lives to thrive, um, for scholars working on these matters to thrive, um, for scholars who identify with these figures to thrive. And for me, you know, it's, it's sort of difficult, especially in the in the space that this book was written, particularly over the past um, four years, essentially, you know, it's it was very hard to not, it, well, let's say, it wasn't hard to be this voice. It was almost the only thing I could possibly do um, when trans healthcare, the trans military ban, all these things are swirling in space. There's this constant denial, a redefinition of legal prescriptions and healthcare prescriptions on gender in order to deny um, these various aspects of trans care on so many levels, it was hard to stay quiet. Um, in many ways, it was very easy to be bold because it was so necessary. And for me, I think that I always think about the fact of how much um, a more careful language could so easily be co-opted um, by those wishing to say that trans identity is a modern invention, that queer desire isn't actually something that existed in the past or that exists within these spaces. The reality is, and I think many Byzantinists know this, like the chapter on queerness um, is really a chapter that builds on a lot of the amazing work that has been done by Byzantinists to really understand how oftentimes ideas of attraction to God, closeness to God are sexualized. And in the medieval West, when we talk about um, nuns who are sort of almost sexualizing their approach to Christ, who are describing themselves as brides to Christ, there's nothing sensational there. Um, And when we see Byzantine authors working through this, there's sort of this recoiling feeling of like, oh my God, how how dare they? Um, And for me, a lot of that is to understand that sexuality is part of these processes of religious um, devotion. Um, and that some of the Byzantine authors are very clear of it. When Simeon, the new theologian, says that, you know, even his penis is Christ, why do you blush? It's really a very complex theological point about the incarnation that now Simeon is actually turning to the author and pointing out their own discomfort with this language. So this um, tension of sexuality is inherently there when you have, you know, Western writers obsessed about how to prevent wet dreams and all these things so you could have a a pure um, relationship with God. Sex is so much part of the story. And what is most shocking about this narrative is just how open oftentimes Byzantine writers are 
about these aspects and how clear, concise, and non-sensational a lot of this is. Like I always like to say, for me, there's nothing provocative or shocking about there being trans and queer people in the Middle Ages. What for me has been the challenge is to be able to do justice to both the beauty of these narratives and also the pain that envelopes all of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for grappling with sort of my, my comments and questions. I think the, the takeaway there, I found myself scribbling down, you know, be bold, that there is absolutely a, a boldness to your scholarship. And, and I think a boldness to you as a, as a scholar that has come through in this interview that that is very inspiring, you know, regardless of whether readers find themselves completely convinced, it is a, a powerful and it, it's a brave work regardless. It's certainly one that I have enjoyed talking to you about today. Um, I think it really, this book stands to shake up Byzantine studies, for, to say the least. Um, so my name is Allison Lee. This has been New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Roland Betancourt about his new book, Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender, and Race in the Middle Ages. I hope many of you will check it out. Thanks for listening. Thank you.